coming to you from the entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas. I'm Christopher Calloway, your host of Creator Talks. Thank you so much for joining me for this special 200th anniversary episode because my guest today is Nick Cuddy. Nick passed away February 21st, 2020. Our conversation was recorded on Friday evening, January 17th, and then Nick followed up with me on Sunday, January 21st. Nick and I talk about how he broke into comics, writing for Warren magazines, and then we talk about some of his most famous creations, including E-Man with Joe Staten, Spanner's Galaxy, his animation work, his Captain Cosmos series, and other books that he was writing. Nick talks about many of the people that he worked with throughout his career, including Louise Simonson, Russ Heath, Wally Wood, Bernie Wrightson, Joe Staten, and Tom Mandrake. And then when we kick back with the creator, I ask Nick the fun questions I ask all my guests. I had no idea of the significance of this interview at the time I conducted it, and I did not know what Nick was going through either. Listening back to it, I realized how important this was to him and why he was so grateful to do the interview. He was so nice and so gracious. I wish I had a chance to meet him in person, but I'm very grateful and fortunate to have spent a full hour with him on the phone talking about all of his work and his life. If you have never had a chance to check out his work, now is a great time. It's never too late to discover someone like Nick. He was a true legend of comics and a gentleman. You'll see what I mean as I talk with Nick Cuddy, co-creator of E-Man and science fiction writer. Here now on Creator Talks. Nick, welcome to Creator Talks. Thank you, Christopher. It's a pleasure being here. I'm always so excited to talk to a guest, to learn about you and your history with all the experience that you have. I know just a little smidgen of it, of what you've done. Let me start back at the beginning. You were in the Air Force military. That's correct. During that time, you began writing horror stories? Yeah. What happened was I was in a very uh, boring segment of the military. I was in security police. And that sounds really exciting when you watch it on television, but most of it was guard duty. Mm -hmm. And I used to read. I would grab anything I could get my hands on and read just to pass the time. And one of my favorites was a creepy magazine. And I decided, you know, I can write one of these stories. And so I wrote a horror story called Grub, and I sent it into Creepy, and they accepted it. And uh, so I wrote another one and sent it in, and that was accepted. So I said, this is fun. (laughs) I think I found my uh, profession. That's how I really got started. That was in the, uh, oh, I don't know, about 1968 or 69, somewhere around there. I can't imagine something that you're reading that you love to read. You're like, I'll try that, and they accept it. That's got to be just mind-blowing. It really was, and I think that's what enticed me so much to continue. That first time you were writing for Creepy, that first run of it, what was your favorite story that you wrote? Wow. Uh, I've written hundreds of stories for Creepy. That includes Eerie and Vampirella, too. They were three magazines. My favorite story, I think, would have to be Closer Than Sisters. It was kind of rough, and I've always wanted to rewrite it because I felt there were certain questions that weren't answered. But it wasn't so much a horror story. It was supposed to be about this 
family that had adopted this little girl. They needed a babysitter for her. And this beautiful girl comes to their house and they hire her as a babysitter. At least that's the appearance of the story. But the truth is that the babysitter is actually the little girl in the future. And she's come through a time machine to stop this family that's adopted her from killing her because she will inherit a great deal of money. And they hired the babysitter to be sort of the one who takes the blame for the death, not realizing that the babysitter is actually the little girl. I've always enjoyed that story, that twist. And as I said, I've always wanted to rewrite it and maybe turn it into a novel or a movie or something like that. That has to be one of my favorites. The second favorite of mine is The Disintegrator. That one deals with a man who develops a disintegrating ray gun. If he points the ray gun at an object and it completely disintegrates without any trace. And that is a very dangerous weapon because if you disintegrate someone, you don't, you don't have a body anymore. And criminals could use that to uh, hide their murders. That person would just disappear, vanish. So a lot of people try to get a hold of his disintegrator. And he has to go on the run with his family, his wife and his son. And finally, what happens, the twist at the end, is that his house is broken into by these criminals that want to get his disintegrator. And all he has is his son's toy wooden gun for protection. And he points the wooden gun at the bad guys and disintegrates them. And suddenly he realizes it wasn't the gun that did the disintegrating. It was him. I love these stories with the twist. <laughs> this is so great. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much. And if folks haven't read these, and I haven't read a lot of them, Dark Horse did go back and collect a lot of those and is still reprinting them as hardcovers, I believe. Yes, I have a few of them. If you like something nice on your bookshelf, you can get it through Dark Horse. If you don't have a whole lot of space, you can always buy them digitally. Personally, these older books I like to have as a hardcover in my hands while I'm reading it. Now, back when you worked at Warren, you run into a lot of famous people working in comics. Louise Simonson. Wonderful person. Really, really delightful. She was my editor at Warren for a while. I was her assistant. This was later in my career. As I said, she was a, an absolutely delightful person to work with. She originally was married to the artist Jeff Jones. And so I knew her as Wheezy Jones. And later, of course, she and Jeff broke up and she married Walt Simonson. But as I said, she was a very sweet lady, very intelligent. And it was a pure delight working for her. When you worked for her, what did you learn about being an assistant editor. The grunt work basically is what assistants do. So uh, I was sort of in charge of uh, reading scripts. I looked over the artwork when it came in, you know, gave recommendations to her. And then I would carry the artwork over to the guys who sort of made corrections. The art director was Bill Mahali. He had a staff that whenever there were any corrections that needed to be made, he took care of it. And then I collected it, and then it was sent off to the printer, packaged it up, and it was sent off to the printer. Uh, I, of course, wrote a lot of the stories while I was assistant editor, so I got the opportunity to see the artwork firsthand as it came in from the artist. And I was very fortunate there. That was something that most writers never got a chance to see until it was printed in the magazine. All the people you worked with, was there any memorable conversations 
that to this day you haven't forgotten that you can share with us? There were a few, yeah. Um, Russ Heath, uh, I wrote a story called uh, Dime Novel Hero, which was about a werewolf who goes west. There's a, a battle between the cattle ranchers and the sheep herders. That's true. There was a, a rivalry between the cattlemen and the sheep herders. And supposedly the cattlemen hired this werewolf to eat the sheep. And this kid, who was a big fan of the Old West, the werewolf was eating up all of his father's sheep and finally killed his father. And it was just him and his sister trying to run the ranch. He had, you never hear those dime novels? Well, he rode away to the Texas Rangers for help to fight this werewolf. The Texas Rangers sent a ranger to kill the werewolf. Now, we know that only silver bullets can kill a werewolf, so the werewolf wasn't too worried. But when he faced the ranger, silver bullets went piercing through the werewolf's hide and he was killed. And then you see the shadow of the Texas ranger saying goodbye to the young boy, and he has an Indian companion next to him, and he says, Hi-oh, silver! And I didn't know at that time that Russ was actually the artist on The Lone Ranger, a comic strip. Supposedly, he got a stack of scripts. This is what uh, Wheezy told me, that he got a stack of scripts. And when he read mine, he says, this is the one I want to do. I was thrilled because I was a great admirer of Russ as an artist. And uh, I remember having a conversation with Bernie Wrightson one time. We were doing uh, an issue that took place on Mars. And I wanted to have the famous Martians of literature. I asked Bernie if he would do one page, but in four parts of the four most famous Martians. And so I had him do the Ray Bradbury Martian and the War of the Worlds Martian. And then I had him do Martians Go Home, the Martians from Martians Go Home, which wasn't as well known as the other Martians. Bernie came in and he says, Nick, he said, I had to look up Martians Go Home because I had to find out what it was all about. He says, that's one of the funniest books I've ever read. <laughs> he says, that's perfect. <laughs> so he was thrilled to be able to do the four famous Martians. He did a beautiful, beautiful job. Uh, but Bernie was a uh, phenomenal artist. I, I thought he was an absolute genius. Nobody embodied horror the way he did. From what I understand, he grew up in a graveyard. His father was a caretaker at a graveyard. So that influenced a lot of his artwork. Thanks for sharing that. And that's just some of your experience, because afterwards, you worked at DC for a while. You did edit, digests, and children's books. Yeah, well, DC was actually starting a children's line. I was the editor of the digest, and uh, I kept slipping in a digest that was all kids. Uh, you know, I had the Adventure Digest, you know, with uh, Superman and Batman and Challengers of the Unknown and all that. But every so often I'd slip in a Sugar and Spike or some other comedy that DC did. And I was talking to Dick Giordano and I said, why doesn't DC do a kid line? And he said, yeah, that's a great idea. And we started working on that, but it never happened. I had left DC soon afterwards, so I never got a chance to really try to develop it. Now there's a lot more, finally. <laughs> yeah, exactly. DC and Marvel are big companies. And all right, they're superhero. There's no argument there. But there's plenty of room for other subjects as well. And kids read comics. And if we lose the little kids, 
then there is no uh, transition to reading comics as they get older. If you put all your eggs in one basket and you just do superhero and you don't do anything else, and of course today there's a lot more, but if you put all your eggs in one basket, you may lose that future audience if you don't appeal to them and what they're interested in. Exactly. As I said, you got to get the kids when they're really little to start reading comics, to get into that habit of reading comics. And they're not going to understand the complexities of Superman, Batman, or, or Spider-Man. And so you got to give them something cute and simple to read so that they continue reading all the way in. When they get into their teens, they're still reading uh, comic books. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of things that kids are into now, like with their tablets and television. In fact, right now my kids are watching Harry Potter, one of the movies, just to kind of keep them quiet. Ah. And, uh, but they do read. Yeah, that's important. That's exactly right. Yeah, there's quiet time just for reading. And my three-year-old, he reads his ABC books or any kind of book. And we read to him, of course. And then my older one, who's eight, he reads a lot. And he's even drawing his own stuff now. He's got a lot of talent. Yeah, well, that's great. That's exactly the way it should be. Uh, you can't expect someone to suddenly, at the age of 18, blossom into a writer or blossom into a, an artist. Uh, if they've never done it before. And reading is uh, reading comic books is great because it gives you writing, the story, and artwork. It combines the two great uh, arts. So if a kid is starting off reading comics, and eventually he'll... Like, I used to read the classic comics. And every so often I would read a story that i go, wow, this is great. And then I would want to read the book, like I would read The Count of Monte Cristo. And I would say, this is fantastic. Well, The Time Machine. And I said, I've got to read the book. And then I would read the book. And uh, very often, that's the way a lot of kids got interested in the classics through Classic Illustrated. Yeah, in fact, I started picking up for my back issue collection some of the Marvel classic comics that were mm -hmm. out in the mid-70s that covered things like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, The Time the Machine, Hyde, right. all those, yeah. It's a great way to get kids started. That's what happened with me. I read a lot of comics as a kid, and then I started reading paperbacks. And I was still reading comics, but I graduated into just reading fiction and science fiction and adventures and horror books. I just really enjoyed that. And that never left me, that love of reading. So we're imparting that upon our children, too. It's vitally important to do that. Uh, you know, we have the computer age and we're, uh, movies are very available. But movies cannot replace books because there's so much richness and detail that movies just can't capture. And so we need to have a culture of readers. And comics is a great way to introduce kids into reading. It is. And I think it's an important way to learn language development. And even, like you said, if you want to be a writer... You have to not only write a lot, but read a lot. Now, going back to comics, you did a six-part story, Spanner's Galaxy, with Tom Mandrake. And Tom's been on the show. I've interviewed him. So tell me about this six-part story. I haven't read it. I love Tom's work. I love your writing. So tell me about that one. It, it takes place in the distant future. And it's about this young man by the name of Spanner. He learns through some aliens how to instantly travel. It's known as castling. He can switch places with anyone anywhere in the universe through this talent called castling. He just has fun with it. He doesn't think much of it. He just uh, enjoys visiting different places in the universe. Well, in the galaxy, I should say, rather than the universe. Let's keep it at a level that people can imagine. He uses this talent 
to hop from planet to planet. And suddenly he discovers, he doesn't know why, but he discovers that he's the most hunted person in the galaxy. And he spends the six issues hopping from planet to planet, trying to find out why he's being hunted. And at the very end, we find the answer. I'll tell you what, I won't tell you because you haven't read it yet. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for not spoiling that. What was it like working with Tom Mandrake? How would you sum him up as a person in one sentence? Young, very enthusiastic, that had a real um, skill for especially science fiction. When I was looking for an artist to work with, I was handed a lot of different portfolios of young up-and-coming artists. And when I saw uh, Tom's portfolio, I said, this is the guy I want to work with. And then Tom came in and, you know, and we chatted, we talked, and I was very taken by his enthusiasm. There was a, um, a weapon that Spanner used. It was sort of like a, not a hatchet exactly. Um, he called it a sheck. One time when I was home, my wife came in and said, the sheck is here, <laughs> meaning the check for his latest uh, bit of drawing. He was great to work with, a lot of fun, a lot, had a great deal of ideas that he uh, put forth in the series. We've lost touch over the years, but he was a great person, really liked Tom. Another great person you worked with, Len Wein, while you were at DC. Yeah, he was the, my first boss. I was working at Warren. I wasn't the assistant editor at that time, but I was working at Warren. I bumped into Dick Giordano, and he says, oh, Nick, why don't you come over to DC and We'll get you a job there as an assistant editor for training. And so they put me under Len Wein to learn all the ins and outs of being an editor. And I, I liked working with Len. He was a great person and very imaginative. He uh, wrote some terrific stories for DC. As I said, I've, I've been very fortunate to work under great people. Joe Orlando was one person I worked for also at DC. The only problem with Joe Orlando was that he worked in special projects, which was coloring books and, you know, and uh, peanut butter buckets and things like that. And I really wanted to tell stories. So uh, I requested to go over to the comic book division. And that's when I was put under Len Wein's uh, guidance. I mean, I loved working with Joe, and it was heartbreaking to have to leave. But I really wanted to tell stories, and I really wanted to do that. Doing a coloring book just wasn't my thing. You got to follow your passion. Exactly, exactly. And someone else you worked with, uh, this is amazing, Wally Wood. Oh, yeah. The way I worked with Wally Wood, it was really funny. I was at a convention, and there was a portfolio, one of Wally Wood's portfolios. Now, I was a fan of Wally Wood since I was about seven years old. Uh, I used to read the EC comics, you know, the science fiction comics, and I thought this guy was the greatest artist ever. And uh, later, when I saw his work in Mad Magazine, I said, this guy was just incredible. And so I picked up the portfolio, and on the back was a phone number where you could reach the artist. And I said, usually these portfolios, you know, the phone numbers are no good anymore or anything like that. But I decided, what the heck, I'll take a chance. And I called him up and he answered the phone. And I said, oh, my God, I'm talking to Wally Wood. <laughs> <laughs> and so I told him I was a young artist and could I bring my stuff over and show him. And I did. And he was doing Wits End magazine at the time. 
And he says, your stuff would be just perfect for Wits End magazine. It was a little bit on the rough side. In fact, it was on the very rough side. But he said that's what Wits End magazine is all about. No slick, polished artwork. A lot of it was. But there was also room for a little bit on the crude side. I was going to uh, work for him for uh, Wits End magazine. But then he had sold it to Bill Pearson and Bill didn't like my artwork. And so I didn't get into Wits End, not right away. Later I did. Uh, as a writer, never as an artist. Then I bumped into Woody at a convention, another convention, and by then we had known each other. And it turned out that he lived in Woodmere and I lived in Valley Stream in Long Island. And we were about 15, 20 minutes apart. So Woody said, would you like to be my assistant? And I said, yeah, (laughs) kind (laughs) of. That would be terrific. And so I started working for Woody. I would work over his house, and then he would come over to my house and work, and we'd be working back and forth. And finally, Woody said, this isn't working out. He says, can you find a studio for us? And on Rockaway Avenue in Valley Stream, there was an office building that wanted people to rent their offices. And I said, hey, Woody, I found a perfect place for us. And that's how we opened up Wood Art Studio. Jack Abel and Sid Shores was also there. We all worked together in the studio. We did advertising. We did a strip for the Overseas Weekly, three strips, as a matter of fact. Cannon, Sally Forth, and, well, for a short time, Shattuck. But it was mostly Cannon, which was sort of super spy. Sally Forth, which was a sexy army uh, adventure. And uh, Shattuck was a Western Now, when you worked there and you were working with Wally, what did you learn about him that maybe a lot of people don't know? That he was very quiet. (laughs) He grew up in the the woods. His father was a lumberjack. And people like that have a tendency to be really quiet and into themselves. He's very much that way. But if he liked you, he would just be chatting like crazy. In fact, Stan Lee did a satire where he was interviewing a lot of different artists. And when he interviewed Wally Wood, he had Woody just go on and on and on, just chatter, 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 because that was exactly the opposite of what he really was. <laughs> because he would come to the office, I'm sure, and uh, Stan Lee would uh, ask him about his work or something, and Woody would probably just nod and, mm-hmm, yeah. Because mm-hmm. that's the way he was, very, very quiet, very shy. Charlton Comics, you worked for them back in the early 70s, and they were trying because Marvel and DC were dominating, and they are still dominant today. And they tried to do superheroes, uh, not with a whole lot of success, but there were some great writers and artists that worked there, and you worked with them. Tell me what it was like back in the early 70s. It was great because it was very relaxed. By the way, the reason it was called Charlton was because the two owners of the company, Bert Levy and John St. Angelo, both had sons named Charles. So they called the company Charlton after their sons. It was great working there because, as I said, it was very relaxed because of the fact that Charlton was interested in their magazines. That's where they made most of their money. But they had these enormous presses. This was a company one of the few, if only, comic book company that did everything under one roof. They did the editing, they did the printing, they did the distributing, all under one roof. The other companies sent their work out to Sparta, Illinois, where 
the comics were separated and printed. So they just did the editing at their company, but Charlton did everything. So it was just terrific. As I said, it was a very relaxed atmosphere because the only reason Charlton did comics was to keep their presses running. To shut down their press was a very expensive proposition. They shut it down twice a year to clean them, and that's it. Otherwise, the presses ran 24 hours a day. And so they had the magazines, but sometimes the magazines just weren't enough to keep the presses going, so they printed comic books. But that's how much they cared about their comics. We, in the editorial department, we cared about them, of course. We wanted to put out a quality product as best we could. But the company itself just wasn't all that interested. So as I said, I worked under George Wildman. Uh, who was a, had a, a very advanced ideas about the comic book division of Charlton. He wanted to turn out quality stuff, and he wanted to really push Charlton Comics up front. Everyone knew that DC and Marvel dominated the field, but there was room for other comic books, and George wanted us to be there as a force. Marvel and DC did superheroes, we did the rest. We did war comics. We did adventure comics. We did westerns. We did romance. We did Bigfoot, you know, like the Flintstones, Popeye, that sort of thing. Something that Marvel and DC uh, just didn't bother with. When I was a kid, a lot of the books that I would get would be Marvel comics. That was basically all I got at the time. And my dad would bring me home. He got me started reading comics. He would bring them home when I'd be homesick from school or something. He'd bring uh, Marvel, DC, a variety of books. A book that he brought me that was done by one of your co-collaborators on E-Man by Joe Staten was Primus. And I was like, oh, holy cow. I had a copy of Primus. And I looked it up and it was like number three. Primus was a TV show. One of the good things about Charlton was that they got a lot of licensing from other companies. They were licensed to do Flash Gordon. Later, when Emergency became popular, they got the license to do Emergency. And then when Space 1999 became popular, we got the license for that. And also the $6 million man. Primus was a TV show about a skin diver. And Joe Staten uh, illustrated it. And at the time, uh, I was at Charlton, and I really liked Joe's illustrations. One day, George Wildman came back from a, an editor's meeting of all the different editors. They had those about once a month. Might have even been once a week. I'm not sure. But anyway, he said, Nick, I've talked the big shots, the publishers, into doing a superhero line to try it again. He says, uh, I'm going to put out the word and we're going to try and get some superheroes. Steve Ditko was a kind of a regular contributor at Charlton. He used to actually come into the offices and work at the offices very often. I knew Steve was going to come up with some great ideas. So George says, Let's see if you can come up with an idea. So I thought, gee, when I was a kid, my favorite superhero was Plastic Man. I love the way he was able to just change his body into all these different forms. And I thought something like Plastic Man. And then I said, well, how about an energy creature who is able to take any form of energy or matter? 
like the famous Einstein formula, E equals MC squared, where you can change back and forth from matter to energy, energy to matter. And so I told George that character, and he liked it. And he says, who do you want to illustrate it? And I said, Joe Staten. Primus was just about ending, and Joe was, would be needing something else to work on. George said, fine. So I called up Joe, and I told him about my character, and I told him, I, don't, I want to stay away from the red and blues of all the other superheroes, because just about all the superheroes at the time were wearing red and blue costumes. I said, so I want something bright, energy like orange. Joe said, okay. And I said, I wanted the origin that he's a factory worker who's blown up in an accident and is able to reform his body as energy. And Joe says, that's terrible, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) He says, can't you come up with something better than that? And I said, oh, all right, Joe, (laughs) give me some time. I was reading a book on um, Challenge of the Stars. It was all a book on astronomy. And I came across a nova. And a nova is when a star doesn't explode, but erupts. A supernova is when a star explodes. But a nova is when a star erupts. And it gives off energy. And I thought, there's my answer. There's the origin. He's an intelligent form of energy given off when a star novas. The packet of energy travels through the um, universe until it lands on the Earth and he um, sees people and takes human form. Thereby, there's my hero. And I called up Joe and I told him about it. And he says, bingo, that's it. You got it. E-Man was born. And you did some work to promote that, too, in advance, to make sure that the stores would be ready for it. We did a poster. We uh, did all kinds of publicity for E-Man, hoping that that would become the next superhero. After all, we had Superman, and then we had Batman, and then we had Spider-Man. And so the next uh, generation would be E-Man. Unfortunately, Charlton's distribution wasn't as great as uh, Marvel and DC. And the kids, as far as they were concerned, Marvel and DC were it. It never did well on the stands, E-Man. However, it did very well in subscription, which means once we got someone to finally read it, they liked it and subscribed to it. It was one of our top subscription titles. But as I said, it just didn't do well on the stands, and it died after issue number 10. Only at Charlton did it die because the fans kept coming to Joe and I asking to do a version of E-Man. And he was published by a lot of different fan uh, publications. He was revived several times, let me put it that way. So in a way, he never really completely died. He's still around. And if we were ever asked again to do him, I'm sure Joe would be delighted to do another issue of E-Man. When you have fans asking for more and your subscription rate was so good, there's proof in the pudding right there. I agree. I mean, uh, I thought we had created a fan favorite, and we have. But it just isn't quite enough nowadays to justify a series that will try to compete with Marvel and DC. But that's business, and that has nothing to do with the fans themselves. Joe and I survived on the fans for quite a while. Thank God for fans, let me tell you right now. Didn't you go back to Warren for a while? 
and write more stories. I kept writing for Warren, uh, even after I left them as assistant editor. I kept writing for Warren right until their demise because I just loved writing and Warren was just a great place for me to uh, place my stories. I wrote quite a few stories for Charlton. At one time, I was writing a story a day for them. I left my uh, job as uh, assistant editor and went freelance. They paid such low rates that in order to bring in enough food for my wife and daughter, I had to write a story a day, and that's what I did. So at one time, I was writing about 365 stories a year. And now to the present, you're writing horror stories again for Warrant Publication, The Creeps. And that's where I first saw your name. I linked it with the stories, and I just went nuts. I've gone back and bought all the issues that I missed, and I'm ripping through them all right now. And I love this magazine, and I love your stories. Just to name a few that I really liked, Cathedral at Stonehenge. Did a lot of research on that. <laughs> what I really liked was In the Art by Santos Zabalos. He has a priest in the background who is the lead singer from the band Ghost. That's the image that he used. I'll be honest with you, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh my God, he worked that guy in. It, it was just so cool. Uh, and then there was Curse the Elephant God. The Curse of the Elephant God was because I've always been fascinated by the Hindu god Ganesh, who loved mankind and was the remover of obstacles. And boy, don't we all have obstacles we'd like removed. I have a little brass statue that my daughter gave me of Ganesh. And uh, I said, one of these days, I'm going to have to work him into a story. And so I wrote that story that takes place in Vietnam. I did a lot of research there, too. Uh, Hinduism is not a very common uh, religion in Vietnam. Uh, they're mostly Buddhists. And there's a great deal of difference between the two religions. Uh, most Westerners don't realize that, but there's a great deal of difference between Buddhism and Hinduism. There was a little Hindu temple at a certain area in Vietnam, and it was right in the, where all the fighting was taking place. So I said, wow, <laughs> that's exactly what I needed. I did the story uh, of the Curse of the Elephant God. Basically, it's about a group of American soldiers in Vietnam. The sergeant who is leading them is a real hard-nosed type, and he comes across the Hindu temple, and he sees the statue of Ganesh, and he just blasts it to smithereens, and when the Hindu priest tried to stop him, he kills them as well. And from there on, his whole squad is undergoing elimination by the Viet Cong because of defacing the Hindu temple and killing the priest. At the end of the story, there's only two members of the squad who survive. They go back to the temple and they find the sergeant and his head has been removed. The head of an elephant has been sewn onto his body and he's been placed in the temple to replace Ganesh. I'm telling you folks, if you haven't read The Creeps, you can check out some of my guests' work there, and you've got to see it. Because, first of all, you get paired with marvelous artists. They make the stories look so good. They are some of the best artists I've ever worked with. They really are fantastic. The quality of the art is what sells the story. Because the people see the art and say, oh, i got to see what this is about. You know, And then they'll read the story. 
But if the artwork is sloppy or gory or stupid, they'll just skip over that story. So the artist is very, very important to sell the story. The art has a very classic look in the book, very detailed. And again, like you said, nothing's sloppy, nothing's amateur. It looks great. So the cover will catch your attention because they're beautiful painted covers. But then what you read in between the pages is just as good and the stories are just as good. And Nick, you have more work coming up. I just heard that Carmilla is coming out in 2020. Yes, it's sort of a takeoff on Vampirilla, the vampirist Camilla. And yeah, I have a couple of stories in the first issue. I haven't seen them yet, so I can't tell you anything about them. I wrote the stories and sent them into Rich Sala. By the way, a great deal of credit should go to Rich. He has kept the quality of the magazines up there. And that's not an easy task because you've got to fill the pages and you've got to make the publishing deadlines to do it with quality work that he has been able to do. To maintain that highness of quality is quite, quite a task. And he really is up to it. Fine bunch of artists. I'm very fortunate to have them illustrate my stories. Now, something else I want to mention that folks need to know about your other experience. You've done design work for major studios, Disney, Universal, Sony, etc. What was some of your most notable work you are most proud of? Uh, I was leaving uh, DC Comics and a friend of mine called me from Hollywood. I was, you know, working in New York and a friend of mine called me from Hollywood, Bill Duvet. He was an art director on several different animation projects at Marvel Films. That was a division of Marvel Comics. And he says, why don't you come out here and do some work for Marvel? And I said, yeah, sure, why not? I'm not doing too well in New York. So I moved my family, my wife and my daughter, out to California. And I uh, started working at Marvel uh, Studios and uh, Marvel Films. And I designed some backgrounds for a series called Defenders of the Earth which was supposedly Flash Gordon, Mandrake, the Phantom against Emperor Ming and their children against Emperor Ming. And so they were defending the earth against Emperor Ming. I don't recall the order, but I did work at Disney. I worked on um, 101 Dalmatians, Jungle Cubs, Gargoyles. I think Gargoyles was one of my favorites, mainly because I liked working with Dennis of Woodyard, who was my boss there. And uh, he gave me a lot of freedom for designing. And I developed my skill as a background designer. And I was building a nice portfolio. So I was able to get work at other studios as well from that portfolio. I had a lot of fun designing backgrounds. I'm a frustrated architect. <laughs> uh, I really wanted to be an architect. But unfortunately, there was so much math involved in architecture. And I hate math. And so I never became an architect. And this was the best way to do it. I could be an architect. I could design buildings. I could design cities. I could design forests and deserts and all that sort of stuff. And I didn't have to do any mathematics. So it was just fantastic. And uh, I could do interiors, you know what I mean, of houses, castles. I had so much fun doing that. And my favorite studio to work for, uh, even though I love working at Disney, my favorite studio, I even worked at Universal Studios, too. 
uh, was a little studio called Sunbow. I was in charge of backgrounds. They did crazy offbeat stuff like Fat Dog Mendoza and the Brothers Flub. And there I just went hog wild. Uh, I didn't need a ruler or uh, any of my uh, drafting instruments when I was designing a city because if I did, the city would be too normal. I just used my imagination and went crazy uh, with design. And the people there were the nicest people I had ever worked for at Sunbow Studios. And then, unfortunately, uh, everything became computerized and... Uh, I was not that familiar with computers, and so the work dropped for me, and well, I came to Florida to look for work. All the jobs you've done, be it comics or for the studios, which one of all your career was the biggest challenge? I suppose it was going out into the animation world, uh, because before then, I was mostly a writer, and I decided I'm going to use my skills as an artist in animation and not be a writer for animation. It was frightening at first. I didn't know any of the mechanics. Every division has a skill set. Uh, there are a lot of artists who can't draw comics. And they're great artists. They're fantastic artists. But to go through the discipline of penciling everything out first and then having a letter, letter it, and then having an inker ink it, a lot of artists can't do that, uh, and a lot of writers aren't used to the restrictions of comics. And so every field has certain requirements. Now, animation has been around for quite a while, and here I am being thrown into animation and saying, survive. <laughs> and... Uh, if it wasn't for friends, uh, luckily, uh, when I went to the animation field, I met people that I knew from comics, like Will Minio and, uh, as I said, Bill Dubay. And if it wasn't for friends, I never would have been able to survive. But they helped me develop my skills and show me exactly what needed to be done. And I became a background designer. So that was my biggest challenge, I would say. Well, we've reached the point in the show where I kick back with the creator and ask them just some fun questions to learn more about you as a creator, as a person. So my first question, what do you like to do for recreation? I guess write stories. The most fun I ever have is coming up with a story. I do have a hobby of magic. I used to perform at Boy Scout jamborees and parties and things like that for something different than writing and drawing. I enjoy doing magic. But to be honest with you, if you put me in a room and say, do something, or I would write a story. <laughs> <laughs> I've been doing that since I was little. When I was younger, I lived in Brooklyn, New York, in the Gravesend District. And it was a kind of a tough district. Each of the apartment houses there that I, where I lived formed gangs. And I was a member of a gang. And I was in an old Jewish gang. I was the only Italian kid in the gang. That worked out all right. My worst enemies were the Italians across the street. Frank Lacassano and Chizzy uh, Rizzuto and Ralph Rongo, all Italians. And they were my worst enemies. Well, one day, my mother decided it's time for you to go to church. And so I went to church. And after the service was over, there facing me were my worst enemies. 
the Italians. And I'm standing there all by myself without my Jewish friends to back me up. And they started coming toward me and I'm going, oh, geez, I'm going to be beaten to a stub by these guys. And so I said, hey, would you like to hear a story? And they went, yeah, tell us a story. And I told them a story. I made it up on the spot. And they said, hey, that was pretty good. Tell us another one. And all the way home, I was telling stories so I wouldn't get beaten up to a pulp, (laughs) to a bloody pulp. And after a while, I became the neighborhood storyteller. Whenever they would get together, they would say, hey, get Nick, tell us a story, you know, that sort of a thing. I guess that began my love of stories. And uh, we also had the first television in the neighborhood. And I used to watch Captain Video and Tom Corbett, Space Cadet and Space Patrol. And my head was just reeling with all those wonderful uh, stories. That's how I got started. And I've been telling stories ever since. Storytelling saved your life. Yes, it did. (laughs) (laughs) My next question is, what was your favorite birthday? Gee, I guess it would be right around the eight. I was eight years old, and my parents decided to have a costume party birthday because of the fact that I was born so close to Halloween. I was born on the 29th of October. And so all my friends came in costumes, and we had a terrific time. And we ate pizza. (laughs) I remember that. And I guess that was probably one of my favorite birthdays. I can see why. Halloween is my favorite holiday. Uh Uh-huh. In fact, the entire family, it's Halloween. Driving home from work, I picked up my son, the three-year-old. He's just talking about when's Halloween going to be again. And I'm Ah, like, well, well, this year later. Yeah, right after Christmas. Well, when's (laughs) Halloween? (laughs) (laughs) He's got a long wait after Uh, Christmas for Halloween. He does. I know there was another birthday that was really embedded in my mind. Do you want to hear it? Oh, yes, please. It was my 40th birthday. My brother and my friend Ernie Cologne. Do you know who Ernie Cologne is? Actually, I read some of his work in uh, Valiant. He got his start doing Richie Rich for Harvey. Ernie and I developed a strong friendship. And he said, Nick, he says, uh, what are you doing for your birthday? If you're not doing anything, why don't we go on the town? We were living in New York at the time. My wife said, all right. And after you and Ernie and your brother go, you know, on the town, come on back. We'll have dinner over, you know, here. So I said, great. And so the three of us just went to movies. We went to nightclubs. We just had a great time. And then I said, you know, my wife expects us back uh, eight o'clock and it's way past eight o'clock. So I called up my wife and she said, I thought you guys were going to be here at eight. I've got the food already. I'm waiting for you. I said, oh, oh, sorry, sorry, honey. And then I turned to Ernie and I said, boy, my wife is very upset that we're not there. And then suddenly I see Ernie turn white and he goes, oh my God, we got to get you back home. And I said, what are you talking about? And uh, he shoved me and my brother in the, in his car and he drove all the way to my house. And when I got to my house, there was a surprise party. <laughs> and Ernie had completely forgotten about the surprise party. He knew he was supposed to keep me away from the house, but he forgot why. And all my friends were there, Bill Pearson and Len Wein and my friends from DC Comics and whatnot, they were there. And Joe Staten couldn't make it. And he just sent a, uh, a card and all that. But uh, <laughs> I was astonished. 
that remained in my mind. Next question. This is a hypothetical situation. You're on a deserted island, and you can have one book with you. Any book, uh-huh. the one that you're going to read for pleasure, it can be comic, mm-hmm. can be novel, whatever you want. What would that one book be? Well, uh, another way of putting it is, what's your favorite book? Mm-hmm. And my favorite book is The Time Machine. H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells is The Time Machine. I did a series of illustrations for The Time Machine. Plug in my name with the word Time Machine, you'll see the illustrations. And I worked very, very hard on those illustrations. It took me years to get all 10 illustrations done. I did it in a style known as scratchboard, which is a board with a clay surface on it. And you ink in your drawing, and then you have to scratch through the black areas to get white lines. And so you get this really detailed, almost etched look to your drawings. The Time Machine is one book, which uh, I, I read the comic as a kid and I read the book as a kid. And I just love it to this day. I reread it recently and uh, it holds up beautifully. And the reason that I love the time machine so much is because it's the perfect travel machine. If you wanted to go to Mars or any of the planets, you'd have to build a rocket. And there's no way that you're going to build a rocket. Even as a kid, I knew that. The uh, the amount of technology and fuel and, and mathematics and whatnot to go to, say, the moon would just be too impossible for any one person to do. But a time machine, well, nobody knows how to do it. You know what I mean? Nobody knows how to build a time machine. So it's very possible to build one in your basement the way the time traveler did in the novel. He built a time machine in his basement. And I said, yeah, why not? That just sparked my imagination to this day. And it is my favorite novel. Excellent choice. Another hypothetical, if someone were to make an action figure of you... What would be your action figure's accessory? Wow, that's something I I never thought about. Why anyone would want to make an action figure of me, (laughs) first of all. (laughs) Well, it would probably be a word processor and a um, drawing board, because those are the two things that I use the most when I'm working. In fact, the drawing board that I have was once owned by Wally Wood. He owned many drawing boards, so it's not like I own the drawing board once owned by Wallywood. I own a drawing board that was once owned by Wallywood. You have one more than me. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a wooden board, and I love it, and I would never get rid of it. And, of course, a word processor so I could write stories. I used to write them on typewriters, and that was a miserable, miserable experience trying to knock out a story on a typewriter because all of a sudden you say, oh, that whole section that I was going to, oh my gosh, from in the middle, I was going to do that one section and I had to tear up all the pages that followed it so I could type that one section and then do the other pages. And with a word processor, you leave out something real easy to put in. I'd much rather work on a word processor than a typewriter any day. Now, when you're recreating, What is your beverage of choice? Probably be a martini. Uh, I alternate between martinis and Manhattans. Very nice. If I'm in the mood for a dry, dry drink, I drink a martini. And if I'm in the mood for a sweet drink, I drink a Manhattan. 
So those are my two favorites that I alternate back and forth. I know. I'm the same way. I have more than one. I don't have just like, no, I don't mean I have more than one drink. Sometimes I do. But I mean, in terms of a favorite, I tend to alternate things. Like, I think I'll have it this this time and this next time. Yeah. Like last night we were watching Dracula, which is now on Netflix. Uh, which Dracula are you talking about? The one with Bella Lugosi, the original? or This is one that just came out. It's a Netflix original. Mark Gaddis wrote it. I'm trying to think who else wrote it. It's a partnership, but it's a three-part story. They're like movie-length, hour-and-a-half episodes, and it's kind of based on Bram Stoker's, but it goes off in different directions. So we made Old Fashions and watched the movie. Oh, there you go. Uh, no, I, I had no idea. I don't know anything about it. It's fairly recent. just came out on Netflix. They did a good job? The one I've seen, yes. So far, so good. I haven't read any reviews. I don't want to be spoiled, so I'm just taking it with an open mind and watching it. There's some pretty intense scenes. Dracula is a fun story, that's for sure. Outside of comics, that's one of the ones I picked up, and I've read it many times. Actually, I had to read it for school, and that got me turned on to just reading books. We had a class called Imaginative Literature. Stoker, H.G. Wells. That was perfect for me. I loved it. Let's not forget Mary Wollstonecroft Shelley. That's right. And Frankenstein. Those are the big ones. Dracula, Frankenstein. There is a werewolf, a uh, classic werewolf book, Werewolf of Paris. It was made into a movie with Oliver Reed. Oh, was that Curse of the Werewolf? Was that the one that Hammer did? Curse of the Werewolf. Okay. That was it. It was based on the book Werewolf of Paris by Guy Endor. Guy Endor. It was okay. It wasn't as good as the other one. But it's considered to be the classic werewolf novel. Okay. Well, I'll lower my expectations, and I'll check it out. (laughs) (laughs) What was a turning point in your life? I'd have to say when my first story got published. Sort of set my the rest of my life right there at that point. If I never got the story published, uh, I probably would have gone into something else. I don't know. But that was what decided me uh, on becoming a writer was that point. There was another point too earlier in my life. My father, I never knew this, had taken an art course uh, in school. And one day uh, he took out his portfolio and showed it to myself and my brother. And we were astonished at the beauty of the artwork. And we never knew that my dad was a frustrated artist. And so that put in my mind that I wanted to be an artist someday. But it wasn't until I actually had my first story published when I was about, I think it was about 25 when my first story got published that I decided, well, this is the career for me. And my final question, how do you want to be remembered? Good question. I want to be remembered as a science fiction writer. I often picture my tombstone, okay? And this sounds morbid, but here's a guy who writes hard. So I sort of picture my tombstone. All of a sudden, the word science fiction writer was there. And I said, yeah, that's the way I want to be remembered. And you've written quite a few. And Starflake and Captain Cosmos are two books that you've written, at least. Those are two of my series, Captain Cosmos and uh, Starflake. Captain Cosmos is actually me. (laughs) If you look at the cover of one of the most recent Captain Cosmoses, uh, there's a photograph of Captain Cosmos, and that's me. It's me fulfilling a childhood dream. I always wanted to be a hero in a science fiction space opera, the way Buzz Corey of Space Patrol and Tom Corbett's Space Cadet and Rocky Jones' Space Ranger. That would have been the ultimate. 
and I got to do it by writing my own novels and picturing myself as the lead character. And I even did a movie. Actually, I did a, a series of movies, three movies, around the character of Captain Cosmos. They're indie movies, but quality isn't up there with uh, Marvel uh, movies. Far from it. Let me put it this way. It's no Guardians of the Galaxy. But it is a movie about this guy uh, aboard a spaceship uh, who runs a freight line between planets. That was me. I played the lead character, and I wrote the whole thing, of course and produced it. In order to get the interior of the ship, I gutted my dining room. And a friend of mine, her husband, worked at the uh, Lois and Clark series. Do you remember Lois and Clark? Oh, yeah. He got me some poles, these huge wall-sized poles that were all spaceship interiors. And I put that in my dining room and I hired a person to build me a uh, console. We painted everything. And then I hired some friends who built a spaceship, beautiful, beautiful spaceship that I still have. We shot the movie against green screens and everything else and shooting in my uh, dining room. Uh, And it came off not bad. I mean, you know, for just a bunch of people who with a camera and a couple of lights and whatnot, it came off pretty good, and you can probably still get it online in uh, Amazon. Captain Cosmos and the Grey Ghost, it has the all three movies. Or just Captain Cosmos, Pirates of the Forbidden Zone. That was fulfilling a dream, and so that's why space opera has always been my great, great love And so I want to be remembered as a science fiction writer. I'm going to check out the film because I love those indie low budget things. There you go. When it comes to like television shows, I'm like, I'm a big fan of Doctor Who, the classic series, because I like using my imagination when I watch it. I don't want it to be perfect. That's part of the fun and the charm. So yeah, I love that kind of stuff. Well, then you won't be disappointed (laughs) because it's not perfect. Okay. (laughs) When I was out in Hollywood, I became friendly with the actor Richard Hatch. He was in Battlestar Galactica. He played Apollo in Battlestar Galactica. Mm -hmm. In the first one, not in the remake. In the remake, he had a part in that as well. And he also did the streets of San Francisco when... uh, Michael Douglas left the show. He took his place. Uh, Anyway, I became friendly with Richard Hatch, and I invited him up into my apartment one time, uh, him and his girlfriend. When he saw the set in my dining room, the spaceship interior, he said, Nick, you've got to let me shoot on this. And I said, sure, anytime you want. So he brought up a couple of actors, and they shot a couple of scenes uh, using my set. That's pretty cool. It was a really cool set. You do buy the DVDs, uh, you'll see. It's really nice. And it's my living room. <laughs> uh, my my dining room. That is amazing. My I would never turn my living room into a set. But my <laughs> dining room is okay. Okay. <laughs> and the comic. Where can we find the comic? Oh, you can find that online. Put in Captain Cosmos, Nicola Cuddy, and uh, it'll pop up on Amazon. So I've got a few comics out there, Captain Cosmos. I've got it collected. If you want to read all the Captain Cosmos stories, it's collected also. There's a subtitle to Captain Cosmos. It's Captain Cosmos, The Last Star Veyer, S-T-A-V-E-V-E-R-E. The big project that I'm working on right now is Starflake. And Starflake is this young girl 
who can live in outer space without any life support. She doesn't need air, doesn't need water, doesn't need food, nothing. She lives in outer space. And the reason I created her was my uh, partner said, uh, Nick, you have Captain Cosmos for the young boys and you have Mooney for the adults. You never created anything for young girls. And I says, well, gee, there was a character that I created many years ago called Starflake. And so I said, you're absolutely right. There should be something empowering for young girls. And so I created Starflake, who is this little pixie-like character who can live in outer space. Her mentor, the one who teaches her everything, is this giant blob called Bonagoro, who uh, is a genius, and he more or less created Starflake in outer space. I have a whole series of novels starring Starflake, including Starflake rides with the galactic bikers, and that one, Starflake joins a biker gang, and I have one where she's hunting the power beast, and I have a whole series of different novels and adventures, and they're filled with action and adventure, and they're good for both boys and girls, even though the hero or heroine of the series is Starflake, a young girl. And I just wanted to put that out there so that people will be watching for it. They're on Amazon. You can pick them up, the novels on Amazon. And we have very high hopes for one day either making her a movie or a TV series. Nick, thanks so much for being on Creator Talks. It has been a pleasure, sir. Same here. Uh, I love talking. It was a real pleasure being able to uh, chat. A writer's life is a very lonely life, let me tell you. I really appreciate you taking the time and getting with me. It was it's just a wonderful, wonderful conversation. I love oh, doing Christopher, this. Christopher, it was, it was my pleasure. Believe me. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it as well. I can't think of a better way to spend a Friday evening. (laughs) (laughs) This is what I live for. (laughs) Well, great, great. Well, once you've found your passion, go for it. That's exactly right. That's what I did. And uh, I'll tell you the truth. Uh, My daughter once said to me, uh, Dad, is there anything else you would rather do than what you've done? And I said, no, I've had a wonderful, wonderful career. And I wouldn't change anything. And if you can say that, if you can look back on your life and say, yeah, there's a lot of things about my life I'd change. Who wouldn't? But basically, if you love what you're doing, you'll never work a day in your life. And that's the truth. If I've been able to uh, inspire someone, it makes me feel really great. It really does. Thanks very much for doing this. I do appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Nick. (laughs) Okay, Christopher. Take care. 